Because when you ask people who have been to university, frequently they'll say, oh, actually, art history was my favorite class. And if you ask them why, they say, well, I got to see so many things that were really cool. And the cool thing about that is once you open your eyes like that, the whole world becomes really cool. My guest today is Professor Jennifer Gonzalez. Jennifer is a good friend of mine. In fact, the four of us, her husband Warren and my wife Maggie, we all chat and hang out together and talk long hours into the night forgetting to go to sleep about, well, kind of the topics we're talking about today, art and culture and society and the meaning therein and our responsibility to it. When Maggie and I went to Paris for the first time at a job I used to have, I'd go to France a bit, Jennifer toured us through the Pompidou, and it was an amazing, best museum experience I've ever had because of her insights and interest and engagement and meaning in art. She's a professor in the History of Art and Visual Culture Department at UCSC. She's an affiliated faculty member in the Feminist Studies, History of Consciousness, Digital Arts New Media, Latin American and Latino Studies, Critical Race and Ethnic Studies. She's a powerhouse and a pleasure to speak with, and also a really good teacher. I've sat in on a class and was blown away. And I am not doing justice to her curriculum verte at all. I could go on for 20 minutes, but instead, here is my conversation with my friend, Jennifer Gonzalez. The reason why professors have tenure is to protect Uh, academic freedom. So let's say you're a scientist and you are working in a lab with other scientists whose findings you dispute, but those scientists have the possibility of hiring or firing you. So you wouldn't really be able to dispute their findings without risking your job. But because we care about academic freedom, because we want to further science and we want to further knowledge and we want to further in every field whether it's the humanities or the arts um, or the sciences, we established many, many years ago in the university system internationally tenure. And tenure suggests that you have achieved important contributions to the field that have been evaluated by your peers across the nation and internationally. And they agree that your scholarship is sound and an important contribution. And therefore, you should be able to continue to do that research unencumbered by the possibility of being uh, fired by those in your immediate environment for your ideas. Now, of course, people can still be fired at universities. And I think that there's a misconception that somehow professors have immunity. You can be fired for all the normal reasons. You know, if you um, are a substance abuser, or you uh, harass your colleagues, or um, you do something unethical, uh, all of those reasons you can still get fired for. You just can't get fired for your ideas. And that is really important. And your job is more or less protected as long as you keep producing solid research, which continues to be reviewed by your peers. And you're promoted based on the fact that people in your field think that what you're doing is important to the field. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't stop after tenure. You keep being reviewed on a regular basis by your colleagues and by your peers in the discipline. And it's a way of making sure that knowledge is tested, that knowledge is true, 
that um, enough human beings think that you've made a good contribution, and that's what tenure is. It's it's similar to um, giving judges uh, positions of long duration too, right? That's correct. Yeah, it's a, it's first an acknowledgement that you've made a commitment to this service. It's a life of service. Yeah. Education and um, research is a life of service to the larger good. And you can't be bribed. The theory is that you can't be bribed to, you know, relay falsehoods and things like that, because you have at least a guaranteed position. Right. And I think that's why judges are also elected that way. Bribed or coerced. Or coerced, yeah. mm-hmm. exactly. At least with the loss of job. Why dedicate your life to service? I think it's a personal choice. I think people do it in a lot of different walks of life. I don't think university professors have a corner on the market. I think doctors and nurses, many people who work for religious orders, um, people who work even for municipalities and devote their life to making their city a better place. Um, There's so many parts of the world that are service-oriented jobs because people want to improve not only their own personal lives, but the lives of others. I would say that's the majority of the population. Most people would would actually like to improve the lives of others and not just get their little bit for themselves. I think it's a misconception that everyone's out for themselves and it's a dog-eat-dog world. I think those are, um, they're kind of trite comments that we make, but they're not actually true. Do you think that you feel that way because you don't feel like it's a dog-eat-dog world? And is it possible that there are a lot of people that are in that space? I think it's a distinct minority of people who are actually like that. I think if you look around yourself, the people who are smiling at you in the grocery store, the people who are showing up for work, even if they don't want to, the people who are caring for students by listening to them, by encouraging them, by enlightening them, um, by helping them move from this stage to the next stage, are all around us, teachers, firemen. I mean, I just, I feel like it's very easy to point to the fact that the majority of people, the vast majority of people are engaged in helping everyone else's lives work well. Your profession is, of course, teaching, obviously, and is also, as a historian and somebody who does art critique, well, how do you look at art? That's, and I mean in a professional sense, you know, when you write your books and all those things. How, how is that, Jennifer, looking at art? Hmm. It's a great question, and it's specific to the particular project. Let me start with teaching, and then I'll go to research, which was Sounds the first good. part of your question. But when I'm teaching, my goal is to look carefully at all the artworks I teach about so that I understand them. I understand their history, understand the context in which they were produced. And that so-called looking is also research. So I read about the artworks. I understand what the makers were doing, what kinds of materials they were using, what were their social, political, um, potentially religious or ideological beliefs. And then I look at the work. And looking closely is one of the things that we teach it's easy to go through the world and notice just the things that are very evident and self-evident with your eyes. But to have trained eyes, you need to be able to look at the corners of things. You need to be able to look at the details. You need to be able to notice gradations in color. You need to be able to notice formal qualities. 
you don't necessarily just arrive in the world having that kind of visual acuity. You get trained to look closely. And part of what we train our students to do is to look at things very closely. The way a detective might be taught to look at clues in a case. We're basically visual Sherlock Holmes. When we're in art history, we're scholars that look closely at things. It's interesting. I never thought about that that's a skill you need to be taught. And I happened to grow up with artists, so maybe it was just kind of taught with me as a young age. Do you find that when you're teaching that, do you see people transform from not seeing things like that and then seeing them? Absolutely. What does it do for them? They get excited. (laughs) (laughs) They often get really happy. They suddenly become fascinated with paintings or sculptures or even just the natural world in a way that they weren't before. Because when we're taught as children to understand the world, our primary way of being taught is through language. And so there are so many different things that we call a tree, right? So many varieties, so many shapes that are different, so many qualities that are different about each kind of tree. But in our vocabulary, when we're young anyway, we just are told, this is a tree. But if we're invited to look closely, and I believe some parents do this, if we're invited to look closely, then we realize, oh, this tree has needles and this one has leaves. Or notice how the shape of this leaf is different from the shape of this other leaf on this other tree. And suddenly, trees are not trees. They're unique, they're complex, they're um, in relation to each other, they grow together, they grow far apart. Suddenly the world is a really complex and layered place once we're allowed to think about something beyond tree as tree and understand it in all its, uh, in all its qualities. And I think that when you look at a painting, some people think painting, and then they think, is it pretty or is it not pretty? But if instead they could look at it and say oh, the blue next to the yellow is a really beautiful combination of complementary colors, which makes my eyes kind of do the shimmy. That's why I want to keep looking at this Van Gogh, because it draws me in and I'm absorbed by the color or the shapes or the brushstrokes. And I look at these details because it makes me think about starry skies or trees differently, having looked at Van Gogh painting them. It's the same thing that philosophy does if you read it. It makes you see the world differently. So when, when people say to me, well, how do you decide what a good artwork is? I say a really good artwork means that you see the world differently after you've seen that artwork. And seeing the world differently and with more complexity, what does it do for you? I think in the best situation, it makes you attend to living a full life you notice people's expressions more. You're better able to attend to how they might be feeling. You might become more conscious about pollution in your town because you notice that it's destroying elements around you. You might be more attentive to how you can be helpful to others. In other words, it really is about paying attention. What we're really learning is how to pay attention Once we pay attention and we decide what we want to pay attention to, then we can contribute to that area or that issue or that, yeah, community. 
Okay, so that's in the teaching, and I felt like that is beautiful. Thank you so much for that. I love it. Totally love it. What about, you said that there was two parts of your looking at art and what it means since the teaching, so people can see the world more complexly and richly, and this other about the research. Right. Um, when I'm doing research, I'm, I'm being the detective in a way for me. And what I'm really interested then is I want to know what hasn't already been said about this artwork or this practice or this image or this artist group. So the very first step with work is research first. So for example, I'll give you a concrete example. Right now I'm writing about how particularly women artists have worked with the question of voice and speech in their work. Sometimes they're video artists, visual artists, performance artists, but it's not that they use the voice only, it's that the work is about speech or it's about voice. Because in a world where women are second-class citizens, who gets to say what, when, and to whom is a political issue. Hmm. And especially if you're a minoritized group, or maybe the conditions are one of war or militarism. I mean, obviously, we can all think of concrete examples of different countries around the world in which this is an ongoing issue, much more severe than in the United States. And I'm interested in artists who are exploring what it means to have a voice or to think about speech. And I look at artists by researching the history of art practice, looking up books that are about voice and speech. I think about artists who've done works that I think are powerful and strong. And then I sit with the artworks, which means that I look at them carefully, visually. I listen to them if there's an auditory portion to it. If it's a video, I might watch it multiple times and think about what each part of the video is relaying, where it touches me emotionally, where it moves me um, intellectually. and All those things you were talking about, teaching people to see things deeper. You do that yourself on that work. Exactly. Uh -huh. Exactly. And then I think about the bigger picture when I'm writing. So I think, who is my audience? Who am I trying to reach with this text? How will they enter the argument? How will they think about what I'm saying? How will what I contribute here connect with other scholars who've written on this topic in the past or excite people to work on further issues around this topic in the future? So scholarship ideally builds on what's come before and inspires people to get involved after. Mm -hmm. That's why I think about it. It's not just pontificating about the latest thing you've discovered. It's um, it's a medium. It's a kind of medium to engage people in the issues and the questions and then hopefully motivate them to get more involved in it themselves. Mostly you write for other academics. Is that true? No, mostly I write for undergraduates. <sighs> Interesting. So there's different genres of academic writing, just as, you know, it's important to think about that. So there are articles that I've written for specialists that are fairly theoretically dense and really only other art historians and theoreticians will want to read it because I'm citing a lot of philosophy and um, I'm intending my audience to be other professors who are advanced. But most of my publications, I try to write at a kind of educated lay audience level. My first book, Subject to Display, is old now. It's been around for quite some time. 
It was published in 2008 from MIT Press, and it is still being used in classrooms today. So I feel like that's a huge success because I'm, I wrote clearly and concisely and hopefully uh, engage in an engaging way so that undergraduates will read it. And I still have faculty using it in their classes all around chapters from it. So that makes me very happy. Also, the introduction to my Chicano art, a critical anthology, which I published just a couple years ago, is written also for an educated lay audience. You don't have to be an expert in Latinx art. You don't have to be an expert in art history to be able to read the introduction to that book. It's really quite accessible. What about the rest of the book? The rest of the book is a mix of manifestos, articles that are by people publishing in mainstream press. So a lot of those are quite accessible. And then there are some rather more dense uh, historical essays and scholarly essays. So it's a mix. And it's meant to be a general introduction anthology. So people can learn about the first 25 years of the Chicano art movement. Many people would say, We've moved beyond that and we're on to something new. And I'm all in favor of that. I'm delighted to think about what the future might hold for that term. It might disappear. It might just become Latinx and not Chicanx. So for those who don't know the difference, (laughs) the Chicano political movement in the Southwest, Texas, California, Arizona, New Mexico in the 1970s was a political movement. And the artists who were associated with that movement called themselves Chicana or Chicano artists. And those artists committed their practice to the long-term goals of the movement, which were equality, uh, labor fairness, and um, a good education for particularly Mexican-Americans in the United States, which were the largest Latinx minority at the time in those areas. Since that time, especially after the U.S. incursions and policies in Central America, we've had in the United States a much larger influx of Central Americans, um, Guatemalans, Salvadorians. I think this is very important because once we had an increase in the population of Central Americans in California and the Southwest, the Mexican Americans weren't the dominant, or they may still be, I don't know what the percentages are, but not the only Latinx population. And of course, on the East Coast, it's a very different mix. You have a much larger Puerto Rican population, Dominican population. So when you say Latinx in the U.S., it's very regional. Anyway, this is all by background to say that if you publish a book called Chicano and Chicana Art, it's very specifically referencing that political movement, that specific Mexican-American identity. And because now we use the term Chicanex. Chicanex or Latinx? They're two different words. Oh, okay, sorry. Okay. So Latinx is a generic term for what we used to call Latino, but in order not to gender it, now it's called Latinx. And that just means all Latin Americans that are U.S., not Latin American. Does that make sense? Yes, people in the U.S. U.S. U.S.-born American citizens with Latin American heritage. Okay. Okay, so there's a very big difference between Latinx and Latin American, and that I think a lot of people don't understand. So if you move here from Argentina, you are Latin American. Okay, if you're born here, but your parents were from the Dominican Republic, you're Latinx or Latino or Latina. Okay. Okay, cool. And if you're Chicano or Chicana, that it comes from Mexicano or Mexicano. So it's specifically Mexican American. And you're not Mexican, you're Mexican American, born in the US, 
all born in the U.S. Yeah, thank you for that. It's it's so funny to hear. I'm I'm smiling and you saying that because it's like I think we've had part of this conversation before. At the same time, I think it's actually really important, and I don't think about it very much. And like, if someone to ask me outside our conversation, I would think about it for a minute. Having the derivation of Chicana mean Mexican, you know, that the words are uh, coming from each other helps me a lot in, in stabilizing that. So thank you. But it was also funny because you got into a, most of this conversation has been very much about where you're coming from and your thoughts and stuff. And that was very much like, I'm going to teach you something now. <laughs> <laughs> so I appreciate that. Thank you. So go on. You were talking about. Um, so the book, so trying to write for an audience that, um, can then easily access the material because it's not too scholarly, too rarefied, uh, too inaccessible. I think people have the mistaken impression that when we do write for each other, that it's not important. In other words, if it's too inaccessible to a lay audience, then it must not be grounded in something Mm. critical or important. There's a kind of anti-snobbery that happens against professors and academics, I think. There's a sort of, um, well, if I don't understand it, then it can't possibly be worthwhile because you're just talking a secret language and you're trying to exclude people. And how does it affect the world if it's just you in this little cabal doing that? Right. So how does it? Well, what's interesting is that people are willing to take that approach to humanities writing. But if I were a chemist writing for chemists and using very specific theorems, that you don't understand, you would never question that that was important and perfectly fine. Yeah. Because you think, well, of course you have your specialized language. It's a science that I don't know at the upper advanced levels. And what I'm trying to say is that's true of the humanities as well. It's a science that not everybody knows at the upper advanced levels. And if you haven't done all the reading to understand the essay, you need to go do that reading in order to understand it. In that analogy, um, a chemist that is doing the advanced chemistry stuff, at some point we might get a new material out of that in its society because those chemists either shared the knowledge so somebody else could use that knowledge to make this special, you know, Dow can make more money, whatever. In the humanities, how does that transfer happen? The Rosetta Stone. I mean, it took scholars a really long time and a whole lot of sharing of knowledge before we could figure out what was going on with that. And then we were suddenly able to translate hieroglyphs. A whole, a whole society's whole language came back to us. <laughs> uh, whole society's languages come back to us. And the Maya, I mean, you can think of, I mean, there's hundreds of examples in the humanities, histories, understanding the past really helps us also shape the future. So if we understand what the Romans were doing, we can understand what the Europeans are doing today. What a lot of people don't really grasp is that we live on a day-to-day basis, the philosophies that were handed down to us from the Greeks on a daily basis, we, every time you vote. But also many of the things that we have in the United States that are sort of shapes of politics that shape our politics are indigenous. Certain notions of bringing people together to talk to each other. They're Icelandic, they're indigenous, they're, um, they're Greek. We don't understand the origins of these human behaviors. It's really hard to know what we're doing and how we got to where we are. In terms of new knowledge, it's always important to think about areas that have been understudied. So the only reason we know about Mayan codices, for example, or Aztec sculptures, is because scores and scores of scholars spent decades and decades studying and studying it and sharing their knowledge. Mm -hmm. And now we understand it in a way we didn't 
200 years ago in the West anyway. <laughs> yeah, some people understood from a, it. From time. a European perspective, yeah. exactly, an Anglo perspective. I mean, the, other people understood it differently. So what are you saying in, in your kind of X uh, anthology? What are you saying there to discovery? I mean, a lot of these people are still engaged in our world and doing work and living their lives. So why so contemporary? Where, where does that academic investigation turn into something? Or is that not the concern? Because just like a chemist working on a molecule doesn't know what it's going to be until some other people use it later. It's that similar? It is similar sometimes. There's two reasons that the book has an impact, at least one would hope. One is that it allows the scholarship to become available when all of these articles that are included in the anthology are scattered or not published and are not gathered together. And so if you want to understand a little bit about the artistic movement, it helps to have this anthology available for professors and teachers. This is the archivist librarian aspect of it, right? Exactly. Get it together in one place so people can read it and see it. Yeah. Okay. So part of it's just making it available and then making it permanent because then it goes into a library, as you say, and it makes it available to future scholars, future students. So that's the, that's the service aspect of the book. And then it can also be inspiring to young artists because they've never seen this work or they don't know anything about it. And then they do, and it might change the way they make their own work. So it can actually have a direct impact on practicing artists. And if you can ask any artist, they can say, oh yeah, well, I saw this exhibit and it changed the way I do my work. Or I read this book and it changed the way I do my work. And I think that's part of what you're also doing. You're contributing to that. Complete mapping to um, somebody developing something new and reading a chemistry book and then using that. It's the same exactly. type of thing. Yeah. Exactly. So that's actually, I guess, another reason to make that lay introduction important to anybody because you're not, you're not necessarily the next important Chicago. Chi, I keep on saying the word incorrectly. Chicana? Chicano? Chica, chic. So it's okay. It's fine. It's totally Chicken fine. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's, um, so Chicana is a female. And this is because of the Spanish language, right? Um, as uh, Ruben Salazar was a LA Times reporter uh, who lost his life in a Chicano protest, actually, about Vietnam back in the 70s. But he was a really great reporter, and he said, a Chicano or Chicana is a Mexican-American with a non-Anglo image of themselves. Cool. And that's his short definition. And the Chicanas were like, yeah, okay, but there's more to it. And so then you have all kinds of writers, like Lawrence Aldua, saying what it means to be mixed ethnicity, what it means to be impure, right? So a lot of Mexican-Americans aren't only um, indigenous Mexican. You know, there's a lot of European mix. So thinking about cultural mixing is a big part of it. So... To Chican X. Chican, Chican X. Chican X? Chican X. Chican X. Okay. So Chican X, and the next Chican X um, important artist, if you will, might not be an academic. So that's one of the reasons why your work needs to be able to speak to them so they can find the pieces that you think is, might be interesting to them. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And also, um, hopefully, plenty of non-Chican X artists will read the book. And get inspired by it, <laughs> right? Yeah. We don't have to think of it as um, like somehow ethnically limited. Right. You know, I love to read books about Italian Renaissance Baroque, but I'm not, I'm not Italian. So I think that's okay. Yeah. <laughs>
Well, that touches upon something. There's an appropriation of culture that is kind of rampant, especially for whites in the U.S. When is the interest in an area and the decision to kind of build off of that in your own work, when is that appropriate when that is not from representation of cultural appropriation being a bad thing? I'm thinking because I want to be careful. So I think that it's very, very important to preserve academic freedom and artistic freedom. And I think using images and symbols needs to be done carefully, but it's never a good idea to prevent people from expressing an idea. In other words, if an artist is interested in pursuing a particular aesthetic because they love it and they're interested in it, then I encourage them to use it for their practice. It's different if you're misrepresenting. So if you pretend to be African-American or pretend to be uh, American Indian or Native American, or if you pretend to be Chinese uh, and you are not, that is unethical and it's a misrepresentation. If I go to China as um, a mixed Norwegian, Mexican, American, and look at something that's beautiful in embroidery, and I come back and I paint that in oils, I think that's a perfectly acceptable artistic activity. Mm-hmm. That's what artists do all the time. They get inspired by things, and they use those things in their work. I think that's really pretty different than the cultural politics of mascots. And so I think we need to take each example carefully and say, well, was this mascot established in order to maintain white supremacy and to to make fun of indigenous Americans? And if it was, then probably time to retire the mascot. Was this park named what it was named because of a problematic history? Maybe we need to rename the park. I think that those are very important public civic conversations to be having. Mm -hmm. The other thing that's really important is let's say I do make an artwork that offends. uh, Let's let's say I do borrow and that offends somebody. They feel ownership over it and they think I shouldn't have access to it. It is my job to be able to articulate why I did that and to have a civil conversation with somebody about why I think it's important that I did it. Mm -hmm. We can't hide and point fingers. That's really a very bad way to go through life. (laughs) And so I say the same is true of the way we appropriate ideas uh, and images in in art making. I like that you talked about like looking at the reasoning and diving in deep. It's very much like what we talked about in the very beginning of of looking at things. Things are more complex if you study and and, um, look at them. Complexity and deep thought, and civil discourse seems to not be the fad of the day. (laughs) Has it ever been the fad of the day? It's never been the fad of the day. If you look historically, humans love gossip and rumor um, to the point of actually starting wars over gossip and rumor. And to me, it's it's too bad. (laughs) I think it's too bad that human beings are so attached 
to that kind of thing. I'm not sure what it comes from. I don't have a lot of sympathy for it, but I know it's extremely powerful and lucrative. And it may be that it's so lucrative that is the problem. Maybe mm. if it wasn't quite so lucrative, we wouldn't try to stir the pot so much to sell TV shows or news broadcasts or radio airtime or whatever it is. Or Twitter feeds Twitter and Facebook feeds, posts. And all you know, I mean, it just seems to me that if you could just remove the profit from all of it, maybe it would be less of a human um, addiction device. Mm. But I do well, the, think it's a human addiction. Yeah. <laughs> the instinct to do it, we all have it at some level. You probably have it less, and maybe that's why you're able to see that you don't have as much sympathy for it. But I think we all have a tendency to, you know, to look at the accident while we're driving by, whatever that is, that clickbaity kind of thing is what we're talking about it now mm -hmm, in the world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there's that aspect, which, you know, is the how we're being taken advantage of in some sense. We have that quality. And so people wanting to make money, use that quality to make money. And that sums up social media in my mind right now. <laughs> but there's also the aspect of the people that are creating these things that there's a bit of, I'm sure there's some motivation of egotism. I had this great early social media thing where somebody who was a kayaker was in the Monterey Bay and they had their camera with them, a video camera. And they caught a blue whale cresting right in the Monterey Bay with the boardwalk behind it and just beautiful spot right in Santa Cruz. And this video was just just amazing and beautiful. You know, that a lot of these motions that are also quite nice. Yes. Not just a clickbaity thing. Yes. I want to see that. Of course. Right? Yeah. Right. And what happened was, you know, 50 people on Facebook reposted it trying to make money off it or on YouTube, whatever. And this person contacted me because I do Geek Speak and said, what do I do? And I had all these different emotions about it, right? Well, isn't it good that people are seeing it? Do you need to own it? She wasn't making money off of it. But there is this, like, possibility of this feeling of theft. Anyway, but there's these, these actors that are doing that. And their motivation might be financial, but it also might be egotistical. And something. Her posting it was kind of egotistical, if you will look at it in some way. You know, I made this thing, or I thought, saw this thing, this is my life. But it was also kind of knowing that other people would enjoy it. But that aspect of other people enjoying it when somebody else was profiting from it was completely lost. That was gone. And then the egotistic became the argument. I think about that a lot on who the people are posting, how you think about what you do in posting it. Because the creation of this stuff is very problematic because we're so susceptible to the desire of it. I think I'm the wrong person to ask in a way about this, but I... And that is, and let me just tell you a little bit about me. I don't do Twitter um, or Facebook, but it's not a, it's not because I think all of it is a problem. I just am a really busy person and I want to spend my time doing other things. But I do actually think it is the way of human communication today, at least in the privileged cultures that have their iPhones and the computers and are spending a lot of time online. I think there's almost... Um, a choreography that's like a symphonic condition of engaging with the internet at this point. I think for my young students, there's a sort of uh, flow that happens. And when I, by flow, I mean almost that, that sense that we learn to think about that notion of flow in art making or 
concentrating or like in the middle of a sport or whatever it is, we have that word that we use flow where we're fully concentrated and the brain in a way almost empties and we're just sort of in it. And as much as I don't like a lot of stuff on the internet or memes don't make me laugh, I do think that some people actually achieve a kind of flow in that space. And that's why they keep being attracted to it because it allows them to skip and hop and jump across literally hundreds of images and different kinds of sound things. And it creates a kind of um, synaptic flood. And in that synaptic flood, there's almost a peacefulness or meditative quality. I know that sounds strange, but I actually think that some people get that kind of pleasure out of it. Hmm. I mean, we talk about endorphins, but I actually think it's not only negative in its in its outcome. I think the harder part is when there's no context for a lot of the material that floats by. People don't actually learn about the real world very well, I think, through a lot of these feeds. Mm-hmm. They... Um, because it's sort of like taking concentrated foods or concentrated, um, very narrow channel uh, news feeds and things like that. And the narrower the channel, the more difficult it is to understand how it relates to the rest of what's actually happening in the world. Mm-hmm. And that's my only concern is that if you are very invested in spending a lot of time online, but you're only attaching to several narrow channels, um, it's kind of like looking at the world with glasses that have three holes in them. And you're not really seeing your neighbors. You know, you're not really seeing whether the river is clean or not. You're not really seeing the people that need help. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you you might not um, even be seeing your family members because you're only really paying attention to the three holes in your glasses and you're you're getting this little tiny feed. And I think that that ends up producing a very... Um, it's challenging for folks to leave those behind and really kind of move back into regular life. So mm-hmm. on the one hand, I think that there's real potential interesting psychological benefit. And on the other hand, I think it could also just really flatten a personality. Yeah. And it's interesting because the, the way we're going to know that is by looking at it deeply over and over again. And eventually I'll, we'll understand a bit more of what are the benefits and drawbacks and how do you, live a healthy life with it. And I think scholars have been doing this now for about two decades. Mm -hmm. And I think people don't know scholars have been doing this for two decades because they're not scholars. Yeah. (laughs) And there's plenty of scholarship out there, scientific studies, sociological studies, psychological studies. And I'm going to say, if you're interested in this, go look at the research. (laughs) (laughs) And, And you're right. That's not your area of expertise, but you do think about online spaces a bit. You've done research in that area. Yeah. I have. Um, I mostly have written about digital art online, and particularly in the early days with artificial worlds and with um, the creation of avatars, thinking about the race politics of those avatars or thinking about the social engagement that was happening in the early days of artificial worlds. And have moved on to writing about other kinds of interesting agitprop that happens in digital art spaces. And part of that came out of my interest in cyborgs and thinking about hybridity and mixing and how we think about um, whether we are actually humans separate from technology or humans that are so imbricated, meaning like interwoven with technology, that we can't ever really practically separate ourselves from it. 
those are ideas that have always been really interesting to me. And so I look at artists and projects that have to do with some of those questions, or I used to. Why does your interest area change? And do you decide that yourself? Or is that foisted upon you somehow? What's, what's the motivation to change your focus areas? Well, fortunately, it's mostly my own decision. And it comes out of genuine curiosity, something I kind of get inspired by or get curious about, start poking around the libraries to investigate for. And that still happens to me. So also many people invite me to do things in the sense that they say, would you like to write an essay about Jimmy Durham, you know, for a catalog for the Whitney or whatever. And I say, yeah, okay, let me take a look at the work and then I'll see if I'm interested. And then I look at the work and I think, oh yeah, I have something to say about this. And then I write a catalog essay about that artist for an exhibition, for example. And now you're thinking about that artist in a deeper way and therefore you might be attached more in that direction. Exactly. So then, I, I mean, I might, for example, then write a longer piece about that artist. So sometimes it comes from people just offering you stuff and saying, hey, you want to write about this? And my first essay about cyborg bodies was from Chris Gray, who wrote a book, an anthology called The Cyborg Handbook, which is a really cool book that came out in the 90s. And he said, Jennifer, I want you to write something. And I was like, okay. And then I just, I researched, um, you know, where did robots and cyborgs, where did they first show up? So a robot obviously doesn't have any human parts, but a cyborg is a combination. It starts way back in... um, Pretty much ancient Greece. Yeah. <laughs> it's a really old idea. What was the uh, the chess game that was actually a person inside it? Kind of things like that. Um, do you recall that story? I don't remember that one. I mean, there's the idea of the the golem. It's an old mm-hmm. idea. But before that, there's even sort of a, like a half human that's slightly powered with some steam. and there's. Uh, but my goal was to find visual representations of these. Oh, interesting. That was what I was looking at. And there's all kinds of really interesting, I mean, it's a rich, rich It's interesting. I know that that's, because when I first met you, that was the kind of work that I was seeing of yours and that research area. And for me, of course, as a techno interest person, I was quite interested in that topic. And nowadays, if I think about people who are doing that research, you don't come to top of mind, right? Some of your colleagues at UCSC, AM Dark, for example, researches that space quite a bit. So there's other people that have picked up that same kind of um, interest and have gone in different directions with it. Yeah. Do you, because you had interest in that space at some point, do you pay attention to the field and what people are saying in that space now? Yeah, actually, I think some really interesting things are being done out of Berkeley right now in terms of thinking about the relationship between bodies, technology, and specifically questions of race. Yeah. And I think Amdark's work is really interesting. And I think what happened in the field is that a lot more people joined it, which made me very happy. And I thought, okay, that's good. I can turn my attention to something else. (laughs) And uh, my, you know, my early essays have been helpful for people here and there. And I've been really focusing on other topics. I'm still fascinated by it. I'm still interested in it. And I just now haven't been writing about that topic for a while. So I would need a little... I need to spend some time to catch up at this point to so, produce some new knowledge. So how how do you decide what is going to be worth your time? And you suggested that, you know, someone asks you to write a paper, and then if you're interested in that paper, you go ahead and write it, and then that might drive you into whatever. We're all motivated by many things around us, and hopefully we don't actually fully understand that. But 
you must have to control that to some level because I would imagine you're not disinterested in the thing we just talked about. Yeah, it's just that you're interested yeah. in other things too. So how do you decide what to do? Um, so time is finite and you realize that you need to choose what you think needs to be said. So if some wonderful young scholars are more or less doing some great work, thinking through ideas that you have also thought about in a fresher way, you don't need to do that work. You don't need to be in competition. There's no reason why you need to also publish on that. Everyone has a very different approach to the way they do their academic scholarship. So some people have, I'm the on top person. You know, I'm going to have the last say on this particular material, whatever it is. And they feel very territorial about it. Ideally, that doesn't happen very often, but there are some scholars who work that way and they're motivated by that territoriality, sometimes to do fantastic research because they're so motivated. Do you see? Yes. Okay. But sometimes territoriality in academia can be quite debilitating for younger scholars who would also like to work on that topic or write about something in relationship to that topic. And so scholars need to leave room for that and not necessarily either say what they've already said before, because that's unnecessary, or sort of try to, let's see, you know, like take up all the different spots on the table, Mm. right, and cover everything that everyone else is working on. It's kind of nice to let people move in and say something new and different. And you realize this as you mature as a scholar, because when you're a younger scholar, it's about staking out new territory so that you can show that your work is original and you're really adding something new. And hopefully you continue to do that throughout your career. I mean, that is the goal. Mm. But sometimes, for example, with the Chicano Art Anthology, you just need to sit back and say, I'm going to do a service book. This book is so that this stuff isn't lost, that this history doesn't disappear, that there's some record and it's available to people in the future. It's not about me or my particular take. It's about sharing knowledge. Mm. And so each project has a different kind of quality. So the stuff that I'm working on now about politics and feminist art and voice and speech and militarism and war is stuff I got interested in because I care about humans and the way they engage in violence historically through war is one way, but there are many other ways. And I was just trying to think about who gets to have a say in that and who doesn't and who participates in those discussions and who's usually left out. Is this work very much focused around side effects of violence and or discussions around violence? And if you're spending time, if that's, is that the case? It's not really the case. It's more that I'm interested in artists who are studying speech as a form. And so that sounds very abstract, but really, for example, I'll just give you one example. So there's an artist named Sharon Hayes. All of her projects tend to be focused on women and girls, and she's very interested in how women and girls gain a voice or gain power or have or, or relate to their own ideas of uh, sexual identity and sexuality and sort of socialization. She does really interesting work. Um, one of her most recent pieces was interviewing. She has a, it's a lot of work very similar to your work. She interviews people, and she videotapes her interviews. 
And she, one great piece I saw, which is a recent piece, is she interviewed African-American women football players. And she talked to them about why they wanted to play tackle football and what it did for them and how they enjoyed it and how they got into it. And this is not a community you frequently get to hear about or hear from. So that's just one example of her work. But she did a number of works back during the Bush administration, the second Bush administration, that were a lot about sort of the U.S. relationship to the Middle East. And she was doing a lot of work about where does protest go? What happens if we shout on the street, but nothing really changes in Washington? How do we think about what real political voice means? How do we understand whether women get to have a say in who goes to war um, and why? And obviously, as Congress changes and more women are representatives and we have more women in power, the discourse will change some. But we can't assume that women will advocate for less violence just because they're women. So trying to think about what does it mean to represent women's voices is the underlying question that I'm exploring in the book or article. I'm not sure yet. And I'm looking at artists who are working in the 70s. Korean-American artists, and I'm looking at contemporary artists that are working today and artists that were working in the last decade, trying to think about how these different projects resonate with each other. Wow. When I was thinking about questions to ask you, one of them was, how do you say no to people? Mm. And that was really <laughs> about how I notice you're able to do that. And it sounds like, even if it's hard, the core reason um, is that that precious time. And then I think, well, what, like, thank you for giving me this time. Um, and I know we're friends and stuff, but why do you say yes? Like, w there must be, if you have that kind of focus and interest and in thinking, is this going to be an article or is this going to be a book? That's about, do you get deviated away from the, the topic enough, right? That's what it really means, how much will you put into it? How, how do you decide when things that might not lead to more research in that space, which is obviously very important, how do you decide when to deviate from that? When do you ever say yes to anybody if you're judging your time that way? So this is a very learned skill, eventually, if you're an academic. Because you just usually have more and more work the more advanced and more senior you become because you have more students that you've taught and they need more letters of recommendation and you um, are publishing more and you're being requested to review other scholars more. And this is just part of the job. Just like any job, um, the more senior you get, the more labor there is, whether you're working in tech or you're working in pretty much any field. And the same goes for being a professor. It's not that the job doesn't stay the same the whole time. It just gets more demanding as mm -hmm. time goes on. And like anybody else in tech or any other business, you have to be able to say no. You have to be able to say, we're not going to work on that project. In fact, we're going to cut that project away and that's not going to happen at all because this other project takes precedence. And you have to have your own logic for what takes precedence. And what takes precedence can be personal interest. In my case, my personal interest is almost always married to some kind of long-term political goal. So my long-term political goals for my research overall are to create a world that's less racist and ideally have people understand work that hasn't been seen as much as other work. So it's not that I only write about underdog artists by any stretch. Many of the artists I write about are very well known. It's more that I try to take a perspective maybe that hasn't been taken, or I try to emphasize elements that I think need to be thought through in relationship to the work. But my long-term goal 
as a scholar is to change the field so that it will become more understanding with better equality. You know, I yeah. have, I have long-term political goals as a thinker writer. So maker. you, so you partially can use that as a guiding force on what you decide to research into. Mm-hmm. But I, I also mean, you also have a goal to spend time with your son or, you know, give an hour to a friend who's doing some weird art form <laughs> thing. <laughs> when about those? What, when do you decide those are, I mean, I guess the reason I ask that is that a lot of times people kind of think of their work life and their interest in that area and, or their work life and kind of responsibilities. And then they're also their personal time. And they'll try to, if we're healthy, we try to kind of balance that enough to get what we need from ourselves and our, you know, feel good about our lives and have loved ones around us, supporting them, supporting them, all of those things, which you are very good at <laughs> from my, from being a friend. I see that at least, <laughs> but for you, your, when you said your personal interests, you talked about politics in the world and art. And because you have this tenure position where your interest basically drives what you want to do, how do you decide? They're both personal. They're, they're all personal. It's not only personal, though. In other words, part of it has to do with looking at the field and being aware of what's out there and thinking, well, here's a lacuna. You know, here's an area that hasn't been studied or here's something that nobody's saying. So it's about how to help shape the larger field of, in this case, visual studies, history of art, critical race studies, and other things like that, Mm -hmm. which are, of course, coming under attack right now from many thinkers on the right. So we have a long history of racism in this country, and I think the dialogue must happen. We need to be having that dialogue. And it's one that I've been working on for 25 years, but not everybody's been thinking about it for that long. I think the Black Lives Matter movement really woke a lot of people up, but now they don't know what to do, and they don't really know just how woke they might be, or even if they want to make any changes, and many people have decided they don't want to make any changes, and so there's a lot of tension and struggle. And I think the more that scholars can um, provide light, illumination, history, framework, vocabulary, for those really hard discussions that improve hopefully the lives of everyone, the better. So I made that commitment. And that's what helps me decide what to write about. So for example, if I prefer to look at Renaissance painting as some way to enjoy a visual moment, then look at a radical poster by a Chicano artist, that's fine. There's room for all kinds of art. Art does many different things. And so there are a lot of people writing about really, you know, Fra Angelico. There are a lot of people out there writing about beautiful Renaissance art and only a few writing about radical Chicano posters. So they don't need me to write about the beautiful paintings that I also like to look at. Yeah. Other things need me to pay attention to them, right? So your interest is also guided by your um, desire to add to the field, the service aspect. Right. I think some people think, oh, you must not like Renaissance painting or you must not, you know, you must not be into like modern abstraction because you choose to write about this other stuff. And that's just not true at all. I love so many different kinds of art practice. You know, I love Rothko and I love Frangelico and I love Michelangelo just as much as I love, you know, Esther Hernandez (laughs) or Amalia Mesa Baines, you know. So I think that's the important thing to think about, too. Just like if you happen to like jazz doesn't mean you don't like classical Yeah. Was there anything you thought that we would talk about that we didn't? 
I would like to ask you what you think about art. Well, I think that I have shifted my thought process around whether you're an artist or whether you you create things. And the reason for that is that I grew up in an artist space where my mother was is is a painter and she's an artist and and what that means is twofold it's this external respect for the work and therefore in our society a profit because of it and be acknowledged that way and then there's this other piece of it which is just the desire to create something and, and express yourself and kind of show other people how you're seeing the world all those things and i think that it is really easy when people label stuff as art to then associate that and i think instinctually for me it's maybe not you know that's the clinical way in being successful as an artist and that secondary label has to do with egotism and has to do with success has to do with quality compared to other people all these things which if you're creating and you find that joy of creating those things are actually distracting to you they're they're kind of they lead you into this other way of thinking which i don't think is the creative process in some ways that being said i think a lot of times i'm i try to create things that are practical in the sense that you can use them so there's this other aspect of the craft you know you can make a pretty bench and you can make a bench that won't break when people sit on it and the second's pretty important when you're dealing with furniture and so there's this the creation process can also be focused instead of like look what i've done into here's a useful thing and i kind of like that space a bit more which so i have a lot of feelings about art um I can flippantly say oh, I'm I'm a podcast artist, right? But I can also just not say artist and I can say I'm a podcast maker. <laughs> and that to me is like safer in some ways. And you know I never make money on this, so maybe there's a bit of that aspect of if I was making a profession then it would be there would be something more labeling about it as a thing by itself. So this is something I'm thinking about. Do you think the maker movement had a big impact on you in terms of choosing that term instead of art? In some ways, yeah. I felt like it was a reprieve from this feeling of labeling art. I thought like, oh, well, I don't have to label it at all. I'm just making something. It felt really good. It's funny because there's, you know, the maker movement, if you will. I remember when Make Magazine first came out and I interviewed the publisher and I had a continual dialogue with him about mm-hmm. it, going to the maker fairs Me and too. stuff. Me too, yeah. Lovely space. I, mm-hmm. I really appreciate it. And, you know, even there, we were, I was going and I still was putting on, so what are you going to do with this? You know, are you going to sell this? That aspect of like, you got to make it into something that then can be consumed in the world at a profitable level because that's how we think about everything. And I definitely am against, I'm way against, like I've learned out of that aspect but I think that the label of maker was about stepping, impartial, was about stepping away from the term art. Um, there's a negative connotation about art. It's wasteful or it's useless or it's, there's another, there's a whole, whole bunch of society that downplay its importance at all. I don't have those feelings about it at all, but I do feel it's a little bit presumptuous to say artist. I think that you raise a really important issue. And if it's okay, we can talk about it just for a minute. I don't know how you're doing on time. But... I am fine on time. Okay. I'm just... So I think um, you raise a really important issue that we struggle with in my discipline and um, that obviously art schools also struggle with. And that is, in, especially in the United States, um, the arts are considered superfluous or decorative or additional or unnecessary. And yet, ironically, people are very attached to one of the key art forms of our era, which is film. 
and obviously music, television, and live performance. All of that is art. And I think a lot of times when people think about art, they think about stodgy museums and paintings that they don't understand or that they don't like or that they think are ugly. And they're supposed to like them somehow. But I also think it's about class. And I think that in the United States, we pretend that we don't have a class society, you know, the way the British do. But of course, we have a very intensive class society. It's just that it's not all tied to aristocracy. But there's an intense class society that's really more attached to education and family, money, and history, and so forth. I think about the car talk guys and how they make fun of art historians, even though one of them has married to one. Um, I think about how art historians are um, considered like the least necessary job by some people. And the field gets a bad rap. Because people don't understand why you would need art to begin with, and then someone who looks at the history of that seems even more superfluous. And of course, if you're in it and you're busy doing it and you're thinking about how important it's going to be that this study exists or that these artists get support or that this movement is historicized, it never even occurs to you why that wouldn't be significant. But I think for a lot of people, it seems like extra or unimportant. And I think that they don't think about what happens in the teaching moment? Because when you ask people who have been to university, frequently they'll say, oh, actually, art history was my favorite class. And if you ask them why, they say, well, I got to see so many things that were really cool. And the cool thing about that is once you open your eyes like that, the whole world becomes really cool. I mean, you can really see a lot of stuff in the world, and it's all really cool, right? You get to, you get to realize that it doesn't have to be a hierarchy of values. So coming back to your thing about if you call it art, then all this baggage comes with it. It does. That's one of the problems that we have. It's like, oh, art, you know, you're, you know, what, what are you claiming about this thing, right? Are you claiming it's special? Are we supposed to look at it differently and take an aesthetic lens? Um, oh, art, isn't that maybe pretentious, etc. And I think those ideas about art are unfortunately historically manifested by actual art museums and art historians. In other words, they've created the context in which now people feel distanced from them, right? Because they've said, well, if you don't understand this, you can't possibly enjoy it. Mm -hmm. And I do, I'm just saying that that's a challenge that we face professionally, but it's also a challenge that each person has to navigate because so many people are art artistically oriented. So many people create, so many people paint, draw on the weekend, they make quilts, they you know, they work with color, they garden with beautiful different colors in the flowers that they plant. You know, people are doing artistic practice all the time and validating it and celebrating it and making it something that we recognize is part of human being. In fact, a key part, I think, is so important. That's why I asked you about art. Do you think that labeling your creation art has a different meaning than labeling it something you make? I think it's asking a question about it. Because if you say, this is art, it means I have made it for someone else besides me to engage with it. That's the main difference. If you make something because you're going to sit on it, it's true that someone else in your family might also sit on it, but you might not be asking them to engage with it as something to approach aesthetically. As soon as you call it art, you're inviting people to take 
a look at it differently. And to have a dialogue with you? Not necessarily. Hmm. Because think of all the artists you haven't had a dialogue with, but whose artwork you really like. So when people made stuff and took it to the Maker Fair and showed it off mm -hmm. at their booths and stuff, was that proclaiming this is art because they were asking other people to look at it? See, I feel that's different than saying, this is something I made, this is kind of neat, right? To me, it feels like there's something different about that. But what is the feeling? When you talk about that, you say there's a feeling. And I love that you say that because I think it's true. I think you're right. What is the difference in the feeling for you? I'm trying to think of things like, why do I share stuff that I make, for example, right? And part of it is because, hey, look at me aspect, the egotism, like I want people to pay attention to me. I don't want to be, you know, I want to be acknowledged and ego stroked and all that stuff. And that's a piece of it. And I don't particularly like that piece because I, I want to feel more about my motivations being like more true to myself rather than the space of need. And therefore, when I see that, I go, no, I don't want to do that. I try to, I shy away from it a bit. Half the time I'm showing it to somebody, it really is kind of like, I'm much more likely to show it to people I care about because I kind of want to let them into what I'm doing and seeing, right? So there's those pieces of it. But I think if I were, if, you know, I have this vision of myself. And the reason I like picked up blacksmithing, the big reason of it, it's fascinating. It's always fascinating, but it's a hard thing to do. And this whole idea of like, I'm a person that's really into tech. Well, here's a base tech. Like this is like core, like you foundational for a lot of things. There's right. a neat one, you know, a loom, you know, these are, <laughs> these are like fundamental pieces of creation that we have. So I got attached to that. And in doing that, though, the entire time, my back of my mind is, I'm going to do open studios one day. I'm going to you know, be in a space where I have a whole bunch of my work up. And I'm going to be one of those people that sit and people come and look and maybe want to buy them and all that. Where is that coming from? You know, what's that, like, like that secrety motivation? I think I've mentioned that to Maggie before. And now I'm mentioning it to anybody that knows me. I think it comes from, you know, growing up with a grandmother who's an art historian and and a mom who's, you know, always showing her work and trying to be successful in doing that and is successful in my mind, but not in her own, I think. So I'm kind of motivated that way, I think, that there's this prestige level, which is snobbery in some ways, right? Some people would look at that as snobbery. You have all this time to create stuff and you're not like doing that for your work. <laughs> That's what you... So I think that some of it comes from that, that it's not me yet, it's me future. Mm. And there's a, I'm not at that level yet, you know, maybe. I don't know if I ever will, though. I don't know if I focus that way. So I feel like one of the feelings that I've just heard, which I really appreciate you sharing, is the feeling of um, of insecurity tied to art. Because you don't know if it is or it isn't. Whereas there's a total security tied to craft or making because you made it and there it is. And there right. can be no denying that there is the thing you just forged. And people sat on the bench and they didn't fall down from That's it, so right. it worked. Exactly right. The right. bench is made, right? Yeah. And it's as if art is its own, um, it's for someone else to decide whether it's art or mm. not. And I think that's not, in a way, too far from... The truth, I was trying to suggest earlier that art is made for somebody to look at or for mm -hmm. an audience to engage with. And when an audience engages with it uh, and says, wow, look at the carving on that bench. I'm trying to say that that moment, in that moment, that bench is art. Hmm. So that something that you put into it was taken out of it 
um, by the person who engages it with it in that way, aesthetically or tactilely or whatever it is. Oh, it feels so nice, you know, whatever, right? Mm -hmm. On this bench. But that means it's the perceiver of it that decides it. That's exactly right. <laughs> That's exactly what that, I'm saying. Yeah, and so here's the thing. It is the perceiver and it is the group of perceivers that agree that it's worth looking at this or that thing, not just once or twice, but a thousand times. Mm -hmm. Mona Lisa, the Venus de Milo, you know, pick, take your pick, right? right. Van Gogh's start. It, it's a, it starts to grow a community around it of people who are infatuated with it because they'll see it once, twice, they'll buy a poster and put it on their wall and look at it every single day because it's something that moves them and transforms them. It uplifts them or inspires them, right? That is when I think it becomes art. My sense is that there's a certain kind of contamination of that activity when it becomes about the market. So when the market steps in and says, oh, we really have to move these paintings by Joe Smith, right? Because, you know, let's, let's write an article about uh, Joe Smith and publish it in this magazine. So more people want to buy Joe Smith and then people buy Joe Smith and then people speculate on Joe Smith because more people are buying Joe Smith. And what's the name of those weird things that you can now buy? Uh, NFT. Right. NFTs, right? Then it just becomes, then why even disguise behind the, we, we don't have to hide behind the painting. Just speculate. Let's go for it, man. Right. Let's speculate on some tiny little gift that somebody grabbed and tossed up there. I mean, that's kind of funny to me. I think they're hysterical. I think it's, I think it's fantastic. It's like bald capitalism. Let's not even pretend right. that there's some kind of inherent value in this work. It's, it's just speculation, yeah. okay? Which might be freeing for art, because then we can just go back to art and say, who's moved by this? If it's your mom, awesome. If it's your mom plus all the people who come to Open Studio, well, then you have a bigger audience. If it's your mom plus everyone who comes to open studio and your local museum, okay, bigger audience. If it's the MoMA in New York, even a bigger audience. It's still an object that you created so mm -hmm. that other people would look at it and think about it. And it just happened to have a bigger audience. So I feel like that, my father's a ceramicist. We didn't talk about that, but I grew up with a potter. Like you grew up with a painter and he made uh, everyday wear. Beautiful mugs, bowls, vases, plates. And he made gorgeous sculptures, platters that were really large, giant freestanding three foot by four foot sculptures made of clay. The whole gamut was what he worked in. And he didn't think that a tiny carved vase or a well shaped mug was any less than a really large scale, complexly glazed sculpture. They're just different, different uses, different audiences. The mug might take almost as long as a big piece of slab-built sculpture because of the detail and the intricacy and the balance and getting the handle just right and carving the foot. And, you know, uh, there's so many things that go into each piece. So I think he recognized that no one's going to show his mugs in a gallery, but they will show the larger sculptures or the more large-scale decorative platters or bowls. Mm -hmm. Because that's so-called art. But the fact that I get to hold his mug every morning, and I enjoy it as I look out at the sun, to me, that is also art. 
the interview I did for this podcast with my mother was a couple days ago, a few days ago, and there's been a lot of thought after it, a lot of people reaching out to me and stuff. But one of the things that I was trying to express to her is basically the same thing. She has been an oil painter uh, for 50 years, and her work does not sell aggressively. But at the same time, she's been a professional face painter, and she's painted millions of cheeks. And all of those have successfully been sold. And personal, highly personal, which is amazing form, right? You're like, not only are you giving a piece of art to a person, you're giving it to them and they are the canvas? That's incredible. Beautiful. And, you know, it's been her profession. She owns a home because of that. A totally successful artist. So the success and the market and how that works is definitely the challenging piece for me about it. I, I really find a challenge in that. That seems healthy to me. It seems healthy to have a challenge in that. <laughs> Good. <laughs> You've mentioned that, you know, people, the general population, whatever the heck that means, says, oh, artists, what is it? Art? I don't understand. I don't understand those paintings. I don't, you know, another, right, whatever. I don't get it. And yet they're listening to music and they're watching TV and they're watching movies and they're loving it. And they're and after they hang, those. And they hang pictures of flowers on their walls. And they hang pictures of flowers. And after the film, they talk about it and they dissect it. And then what does it mean to me? Well, I thought this. And there's argument. a lot of people engage in that critique of these big pieces of, of work. And it's like because those things are successful and people are making a living off them in a capitalistic world, it's not actually art anymore. It's, you know, something else. It's entertainment. It's a very weird thing we do about the label of where where capitalism or profitability matches creativity. It's odd. I think there's a long history also of art trying to not be commercial. And uh, there's a really classic essay by a scholar named Clement Greenberg that was written in the 1930s um, in response to the way Nazi Germany started producing a lot of very kitschy art around Hitler. And he wanted to distinguish what he called kitsch, which was sort of commercial, um, heroicized, schlocky paintings, what we call schlock, from true creative artistic practice that he saw as the avant-garde. Did he invent the term kitsch? Because I used that. No, it came long before. Okay, good. But um, but he he wrote about it, so he was interested in why the arts need to be protected from commercialism. In the coming full circle now, back to academic freedom, if your art has to make a profit, then you might not do anything very experimental, because then you won't push the boundaries or try something new or work in a medium that is not normally consumed because you have to make a profit. And so he wanted to say, actually, it's very important for there to be room in our culture for arts to be avant-garde, to do things we don't anticipate, to show us, make sounds or show forms or work with materials in a way that we've just never experienced before. And we have to protect that. And the only way to protect that is to not allow it to become purely commercial. Hmm. And so in some ways, art museums historically have tried to understand what are the new transformations in creative practice in human history? How do we, how do we show those transitions? How do we collect works that um, help us understand different historical eras through the creative new practices that are emerging at that time? So... Abstract painting is now very old. You know, it was a 20th century, well, actually, early 20th century phenomenon, but it had a heyday, let's say, in the mid of the 20th century. Large-scale canvases, block colors, you know, color field painting and everything, 
a lot of those paintings um, are now just part of history. And people have moved on and gone back to representational painting and have moved on and done, you know, all kinds of wild photorealistic painting and so forth and so on. So what I'm trying to say is that when museums try to protect the arts, it's they're really trying to tell the history of art. Mm. They're not trying to say this is better than that and it will always be better. It's no, this was an interesting, new, transformative, creative era with these artists doing something we totally didn't anticipate. And we're going to save it because we want to show it. Whether it's a 16th century Italian studiolo in the Met or it's like a Rothko, you know, hanging in the MoMA. We want to save it because we think it matters. Mm -hmm. And the we, of course, is a very big we. It's not one curator, it's a huge we, right? If we like the idea of supporting people that are doing things that are not yet popular and they're pushing art forms, and they're avant-garde in their nature. And I, I agree with uh, Clement, what was his name? Greenberg. Last? Greenberg. I think it makes a lot of sense. We're doing a kind of crappy job with that with regards to our current structures of capitalism, right? Because the trope is a starving artist, right? You, If you are cutting edge and you're doing something that at some point even might be really, really important, you might still be starving the entire time of your life. You might be struggling the entire time. Maybe that is one of the things that actually produces amazing work because you see a histor- history of that in some senses. But it seems like it's not the best way to, inv- or, or maybe it's all, it's like an, a Darwinism quality. If you can get it and you can keep making it and still make a living and feed yourself and have a happy life or a sad life that produces <laughs> this work, that's great. That's what we want. We're going to make suffering be a part of the art process. How do we get away from that? How do, how do we do, deal with that? Because I personally know a lot of people that are like shy of their art because their passion and interest does not make them um, f- successful in our in our societies, and maybe never will, or maybe will post- posthumously. We don't know. Well, that's a very big question, but I can just say that historically there have been different eras in which uh, governments have supported the arts more or less. And the National Endowment for the Arts in the United States used to be much better funded than it is now. There used to be many, many more opportunities for small towns to have um, ballets for their children or to have local theater or to do um, a, to build a local gallery because of the National Endowment for the Arts. And as that money has been more and more cut, more and more smaller scale endeavors with the arts have disappeared all over the United States. And so it has to do with who can provide support for that kind of livelihood experimentation. I can say that in Europe, for example, if you are a fine artist and you've got training and you can show that your work, again, through peer analysis, you know, peer review, is significant in their eyes, in the eyes of experts, you get funded by the government and you are actually paid a small salary to do your work Mm -hmm. so that you don't have to work at the convenience store and you can spend time in your studio and there is an efflorescence of the arts in many parts of Europe that have that kind of funding that we do not see here precisely Mm -hmm. because that funding does not exist. So it's about a culture saying this is enough of a priority to everybody here in this collective that we're willing to spend some of our tax money supporting the arts because we think the arts matter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think some of the side effects of that are, are pretty severe. Not having that is really problematic. One of the things that happens is anytime somebody appreciates something, 
They want it to be commercially viable. <laughs> and it's such a weird, I keep, this has been a theme throughout this podcast series. Janine Chadwick, who runs Little People's Repertory Theater for years, I just spoke with her. The trope at the end of every production is someone comes up and like, you should do, meaning what you're doing now is not what is the final for you. Even though she's been successfully creating this amazing art experience for all these children and the entire community for a couple decades. And that is good. That is and very good. And we are lacking that. And so for some reason, this label of because you're not financially successful in it, it means it has less value is really problematic. It's something I'm checking myself a lot on. And I think that's partially the judgment about the making movement and stuff, right? We're not, we're not making it for success. We're making it because of the experience of making it. If that can be art too, then I'm fine with the label at the same time. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think something has to sell in order for it to be art. I think it... Can I quote you on that? Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. I think we should all resist the tendency to think that value and dollar amount are somehow coextensive because they simply aren't. Meaning cultural value, human value, should never be equated with dollar value. It just doesn't make any sense at all you know how, how could you how could anybody do that really right. one of my first jobs i was talking about hourly salary or whatever and and my friend said how much does it cost for you to go to sleep and i was like what he's like your hourly rate for sleep what do you charge yourself and i'm like <laughs> what did you and it kind of like it was a great way to to get that little young logical brain to break and go oh i'm not looking at this right <laughs> being a human being is not about making money it turns out, yeah. It's so funny because, yeah, sure, I can say that. You can say that because, you know, we've got, we're fine. We're not in a problem financially, right? We have our homes and salaries and all those things. This is an interesting question. If we were not salaried and struggling financially, do you think we would think that being human was about making money? Or would no. we just recognize that money was part of something we needed. Right. Just like sleep. Just like sleep. Yeah, that's true. I, uh, the reason I was thinking about that and the privilege aspect of it is that I think, first off, it's important for us to, us to understand the privilege. This is a, an underground, under theme the entire time of this series that I've been thinking about, like, what, why am I even talking? You know, shut up, Lyle. There's <laughs> <laughs> that aspect of it. That's why interviewing other people at least is like, well, because I want to give them voice. That's fine. But there's this other aspect of like, the topics I'm talking about, you don't talk about when you're like, how do I pay my rent? Right. And I, I lived like that when I was growing up. Me too. And maybe we did still have these discussions though. Of course we did. These are important discussions about how we want to live. But earlier we were talking about, you're giving something out in the world to show people, you know, what do you think? You know, that's, that's one of the thoughts about what art is, is that it's, you know, you're hoping that other people will engage in it. And, you know, being a white cis dude in the United States it doesn't feel like we need to hear a lot more from me just right off the bat, right? So I so disagree. I so disagree, but go ahead. <laughs> well, I'm only saying that in the sense that if I'm taking other people's space and I'm saying, hey, look at my contribution and what I'm saying, you know, this is something I've made. What do you think of it? How does that affect you? It feels like that there's quite a bit of an imbalance on how many white cis dudes are doing that versus other people in the world. And so when I do that, aren't I just continuing that? process is a responsibility for me to be quiet. And I definitely have felt this in the last couple of years. I felt like, okay, yeah, stop. I slowed down on Geek Speak. I'm like, 
my voice is not as important. At the same time, like, but I do care about these issues, and I do have these skills and capabilities and my art form, if you will. Let me use it for that form. And I think that's part of what this series is, is trying to figure out how do I use my my desires and, and creative qualities to do something important that's not just about who I am. Um, thoughts on all that? I think you've arrived. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Well, Jennifer, thank you for doing this with me today. I hate to be the one that finished the, the thought. Um, oh, I thought that was... I really appreciate your all... I mean, this is amazing. Talking with you is just wonderful. And it's so funny because I knew... I knew chatting with you would be wonderful. It has been. Yeah. And maybe this happens every time. My mom has said for years that when she paints a portrait of somebody, she falls in love with them because of the thing you're talking about. You... you dive in you figure it out you focus on all the different things and think about it from different angles all of a sudden you're invested in whoever that person is feels that way in every single podcast i'm doing in this series that i just i'm just fall, especially when i edit i'm like falling in love with this like <laughs> the ideas that have come up the person that's speaking so thank you for letting me do that with you yeah Appreciate it. oh it's a, it's been a total pleasure thanks lyle